and counting. So if you look at the board, you'll see a question. It says, what do you want to be sure we discuss in this series? If you're coming basically as, you know what, just wanted to see whatever you come up with, that's fine. But I really do like to try to scratch where it itches. So if there's something specific that you wanted to be sure we cover, um, then I'd like to hear that now. If it's in the normal course of what we do, then that's cool. It's already there. If not, then I will try to plan to uh, bring it in in some way. So do you have anything that you wanted to be sure we cover in the series? Mm -hmm. So it's just doing, you know, kids developing from kids and teens. Kids to teens. When I did the class on adolescence, uh, parent, I did just for parents of adolescence, I defined that as 10 to 25. And I think I was being conservative. Remember, adolescence is something our, our society is kind of made up. So we think of it in terms of teens, but the reality is those things you run into, yeah, you don't wait until you're 13 for that. So absolutely you're hitting those now. And I've seen parents dealing with some of those as early as 8 and 9. Um, it's, every child's different, but society has a lot to do with that too because adolescence is a societal invention. Okay. We will, we will try to move with uh, illustrations in and out of different age ranges. If I'm not scratching where it itches on anything in particular, both for you and anybody else, um, say so. Okay, how would that apply for a 12-year-old? How would that apply for a 16-year-old or whatever so that we can make sure that we're actually, again, scratching where it itches? Okay, what else? And also an alumni of this of this yes. series. Yes, this is my first. I came to this class. I became acquainted with the church, and uh, I didn't finish it, so I gave this time on my semester to finish it. Cool. Okay. Well, I want to say like engaging, keeping uh, communication, and and the aspect of like being um, trustworthy, obedient. Are you talking about you as the parent or the child? The child. Okay. I, like, I know how to convey it at times, but you know, how to really get it to stick where, and then not turning it around on, well, you said this, <laughs> you know, where then you really meant this. So, just Yeah. Um, which gives me uh, an opportunity to begin to uh, start my quotes. Uh, there are several quotes that I will bring out several times, probably each session, much more each each over or the over the whole series. One of them is this: Understand, please, never gauge your success as a parent until your children are 30, because the reality is they are developing and you're shaping the development, but they're not at any point that we're. We're talking about with the ages of yours, short of Sherry and myself. Um, we're not talking about having reached those goals yet. So keep that in mind. Also keep this in mind. The job descri description of a child 
including an adolescent, they, they're more sophisticated about it, but it's still there. The job description of a child is to get their own way. That's pretty much the definition of immaturity, and we're going to see why in a moment. And so as we work with our children, part of what we're trying to do is help them to grow out of that childishness, uh, hopefully not leaving the child-likeness that Jesus talked about, but growing out of the childishness and uh, into a more mature approach to life. Once again, if they're there at 30, if I were you, I'd be pretty happy. So, you know, Cut yourself a little slack. Don't expect it by 6, or for that matter, 16, because they're not likely to be there. Okay? What else? Helping them find their gifts. Okay? Helping them find their gifts. That's actually not going to be as hard as you think. Um, helping them accept their gifts might be. And that's, at least that's what I've found. Because uh, let's face it, if we as parents say, oh, but you're really gifted at this, well, they roll their eyes and go, yeah, right, Mom, right, Dad. Because they sort of expect us to say that. Um, so one of the problems is we've got to make sure it's coming from somewhere else. But yeah, we'll definitely address that in a couple places. What else? Okay. Spiritual growth. You'll notice I already said something in terms of the goals about, you know, maybe you've got a spiritual goal. In fact, you may have noticed that that was the first thing I said. Because I said this from the platform, and I believe it very firmly, that our, our purpose statement as a congregation is totally applicable as parents. That our real role in their lives is to facilitate a passionate personal relationship with Jesus Christ that leads to a lifelong discipleship for them. And honestly, it doesn't matter what else happens. If that happens, you have just accomplished the eternal goal. I mean, what could be bigger? What could possibly be as important or more important? So um, throughout this, I'm going to assume, and in this class, everybody here is somebody who's part of our body. And everybody here is somebody who at one time or another has expressed faith to me, at least, and I, so I've heard that. Um, so I get to make an assumption that in a lot of classes I don't get to make, because I honestly don't know everybody in a lot of my classes. And that is that all of us, by the discipler function of a parent. Can we agree on that? That we all understand that that's, yeah, our, our job as parents is to make disciples of our children. So um, I'm going to be able in this class, uh, actually more than even the Tuesday night one, to take that role on and say, all right, everything we do then, when you get right down to it, is about that. So hopefully um, we'll be over and over and over addressing that. But once again, if I'm not specific enough, or if there's a specific thing that you've got as we go through the, the different things, please nail me down on it. Okay? All right, what else?
Okay. If we come up with more, that's fine. We can always kind of add to. But let me send the schedule around and uh, talk to you just briefly about the things that are in this. There's three on that side and three on that side. You'll notice that the second date is the Sunday date. And there is a point where it's before instead of after. So today, for example, we, we did this session already last Tuesday. However, uh, when you get to, let's see, where does it actually flip? Um, yeah, it looks like it flips on the fourth session. Um, when we hit prevention, we're actually going to be doing the prevention segment on a Sunday and then the following Tuesday doing the prevention segment into, on Tuesday. So this is the first one for the first half and then for the second half the second one. The reason for that is on Tuesdays we will not be meeting on FX nights, which are the first Tuesdays of the month. And so there's two Tuesdays that uh, we're going to be skipping if you, if you were to look at those first dates. Um, what that does for you is gives you the opportunity that if you do actually miss a Sunday because you're sick or something then, and you want to actually be part of a, a, a group rather than just listening to something, then you're welcome to come. Uh, you can do that in advance also. That's why I've given you this. Today we're talking, of course, about all the introductory stuff, and then we're also going to be doing some basic discussion of child development, particularly with regard to how they think and how they make decisions. If we do not understand that, we cannot teach them. Next week, we're going to be talking about the nature of parenting, what it is, why it is, why God gave it to us, what it is not. There is, uh, in fact, a theological underpinning that we have touched on on Sunday mornings a few times in the last three or four months, contrasting the choice that we have that's presented to us in the, the letter to the Hebrews of in the 10th chapter, God as judge, or the 12th chapter, God as father. The difference, of course, is our response to him. He invites us all to belong to him. But for those, the 10th chapter says, who continually trample underfoot the blood of Christ, who just say, I don't care, I don't want it, I'll do what I want, and I will be my own Lord. There is a time when they will face God as judge. We will too. But God as judge will immediately then say, you're covered because of what Christ did. And then from that point forward, he's got his father, and that's the only role we need to worry about. Unfortunately, if we don't do that, then it's just God as judge. And the cool thing is that in the Bible, we're given the ability, we're given the responsibility of emulating God in one of those roles, the father role. Never the judge rule. So as parents, we've got to constantly be asking ourselves, am I trying to judge? Am I, in fact, judging, or for that matter, being executioner? Or am I acting as father, who is, in fact, the lead teacher? Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time on that next week, and if you've read it in advance, it's going to give us the opportunity to go a lot deeper than just what's in the manual. Um, the next week, we're going to be talking about the parenting team. 
Now, by the parenting team, what we're going to be uh, discussing is, first of all, who is involved in parenting your children. In, in a real sense, there's no such thing as a single parent, not in our society, because it's a misnomer. What we're referring to is the relationship status of the parent rather than the parenting status, because there's a lot of different people who can and usually are involved in the parenting process. The responsibility the parent has is, first of all, getting a grasp of who all that is. And then having gotten that grasp, then deciding, is that the team I want? Because we're the only ones who get to shape the team. And then making sure that we actually manage that team well to accomplish our goals. Some of the things that are up on that board, for example, helping them understand and accept their gifts. Um, again, there's things they won't accept from us as parents, but they will from others. And we can talk to those others. We can plan this. We can set this up in no way deviously. It's all honest. It's all above board. And yet we can pull in those resources and, and use each other, use other people in the body, use people who are specialized roles. There's one other thing that's going to be very obvious as we hit the parenting team that's going to affect perhaps everybody in the room. I'm not positive, but I think maybe. And that is, what if there's what we call primary parents, who are the parents who have legal rights, usually birth parents, but not always. What if the primary parents are not working together? What if they are, for example, not living together and not getting along well? And the child or the youth is then subjected to this push-me-pull-you thing, okay? And that is extraordinarily common extraordinarily common. Um, and I'll tell you right now, I cannot give you a magic formula to eradicate the problem. What I will say to you, however, is the parent who is the most intentional, there's a reason we have that word as the title of this series, the parent who is mo the most intentional, the most deliberate, the most systematic, in the long run, we're back to 30, so don't look for this at 20, because at 20, it may well be the parent who gives me my way. But the parent who's the most intentional is the one who will have the greatest effect on the child. There's a, a significant amount of research that backs that up. So by, by being here and by saying, I'm not going to just take potluck. I'm going to, to know what I'm doing and do it very intentionally and very consistently. You are making yourself the one who is likely to have the greater impact. So can you, can you get rid of all the problems that are going to come if that's your situation? I have no way to make that happen. But can you make sure that what you're teaching is what is going to uh, have the greater impact? Again, there's no predicting what choices the child will make necessarily. But remember, those choices are, are informed by what you do and how you do it. And uh, we'll be talking about that in numerous ways as we go through this as well. After that, we then go into what I call the toolbox phase. And I will tell you that a lot of parents don't make it to that phase. Um, in, a, in a typical class, I have a third to half drop out by the time I get there. Um, and usually the reason, at least when I can talk to people and find out, 
is more, I, you know what, I came here to figure out what to do when. Well, I'm going to try to help you with what to do when, although I can't cover every when, obviously. Your kids will come up with far more variety of wins than what any of us can possibly plot solutions to. But my bigger goal is actually, and it starts with the fourth, with the prevention, all the way through the, the level one, level two, level three. My bigger goal is for you to have a toolbox where you can look at this and say, this is how I respond to things. These are the tools I'm useful, or that I found useful. Um, and, and they're different tools. Some people do better with one tool than another. Some jobs require one tool over another. And so that gives you the ability when your kids get really creative and they come up with those strange things that no human being could ever have predicted, that gives you the ability to process them and still come out with the best response. So my goal is not that I answer specific questions in this class. If I can, hey, that's icing on the cake. But my goal is that you can make the icing and you can answer those questions so that, frankly, you don't need me involved. Does that make sense? Are there any questions so far? Okay, for an hour and a half uh, class, I'm probably most of the time going to just push through, uh, especially if we get started a little late as we did today. However, if uh, anybody needs to get up and stretch, go to the restroom, uh, whatever, and, and again, you, most of you have done this, bring your own fluids, um, feel free to do that. If, if it's chocolate, just make sure I can't smell it, okay? Um, and in fact, sometimes people need to even bring meals. Uh, this is pushing into mealtime, and sometimes you may have to go do something afterwards. Feel free to do that. Okay. Once again, if it's chocolate, make sure I can't smell it, please. Uh, other than that, it's not that I don't like chocolate. It's quite the opposite. Um, so let's go ahead and, and push through and start talking a little bit about child development. Has anybody here ever been trained in child development, particularly cognitive child development? I know you've had some. Yeah. Okay. So when you go to college, uh, it's not usually in high school. When you go to college, if you take a course called Educational Psychology, this is where you get into it. I found that just absolutely fascinating. Probably more because I still were one. And I'm looking at myself as a child back then going, oh, so that's the problem. <laughs> and, and it really did help me in some ways. But also because at that time we're beginning to look at having kids. And, of course, I'm working with children in the church. And oddly enough, if you understand them, it's a whole lot easier to teach them. There's an old saying, if you're going to teach Johnny the Bible, you need to know how to teach. You need to know Johnny, and you need to know the Bible. Well, if we're going to make disciples of Johnny, we need to know how to make disciples. We need to know what disciples are, and we still need to know Johnny. Um, a 4-year-old is not going to respond the way a 14-year-old does, or a 24- or 34-year-old. And the fact of the matter is there are some, not all, but some aspects that are somewhat predictable. And those are the ones that I want to talk about today. Um, this is not a full course on child development by any means. This is more focusing on the cognitive and moral decision making. 
And it starts with a guy named Jean Piaget. Does anybody remember that from school? Okay. Uh, Piaget was Swiss, and he was a psychiatrist. He uh, was, was practicing and sort of hit his zenith in the first decade or so of the 20th century. So we're talking well over 100 years ago. And believe it or not, Piaget was the first one to actually say, hey, those four-year-olds aren't just little adults. Before that, pretty much every major teaching uh, approach approached a four-year-old or a six-year-old or an eight-year-old as little adults who just were sort of empty. And so what do you do? You try to cram things in. And so there's all this rote stuff thrown at them, and people, uh, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, learning uh, Latin declensions and things like that that are 100% meaningless to them. And, uh, and frankly, didn't help much in terms of the whole educational process. This is still true today. Uh, So-called advanced learning centers for young children. Unless you've got literally a one-in-a-million child who is so precocious that they've sped through this whole process I'm about to share with you, and at six-year-olds are functioning at the level of adults. And that's almost never true, no matter what parents like to think. Unless you're doing that, if you're trying to push your children to learn the way someone older would learn, you're actually harming them long-term, not helping them. So we need to be very careful of that because our society values that kind of thing. I hear commercials for preschools because of how well they're going to prepare your kids for college. And it's one of the biggest lies and stupidest things I've ever heard. It just makes me angry because it's not, it's not innocuous. It's harming those kids. And we need to be very careful of that. So Piaget watched children and made a number of observations and said, you know what, they don't think the same way we do. And, and, you know, by the time they're grown, then they are we, and they do think the same way adults do. But there's a process that they go through. So what I want to share with you is this process. There's nothing particularly biblical about it except, as the Proverbs tell us, to train up a child in his own way. It does not say in the way he should go. That is a mistranslation. Uh, the Hebrews understood the concept of a child's path. And to train up a child in that path appropriately and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, was that exactly what the proverb writer was saying? I'm quite confident it is not. However, it does apply. So let's look at how children learn. First of all, do you understand that a newborn baby is learning? Literally is learning. Ten minutes old. Being held or not is learning. The good news is they don't learn uh, permanently by one thing. So, you know, when the doctor gets freaked because the baby's blue and kind of slaps them, they don't do that all the time, but I had one like that. Uh, like that, and, and the baby goes, and all of a sudden he's not blue anymore. He's breathing. Okay, that's cool. We like breathing. We're going to stop slapping the kid now, okay? Because if that kept up, he would definitely have learned from that, so they learn, and the way they learn is what's called sensory motor, which means they learn through their senses and by doing things. At first, 99% sense, 1% motor maybe. 
baby. <laughs> because, of course, a brand-new newborn baby, uh, you know, the, the legs are kicking, the hands are going all over the place. The baby hasn't quite picked up on the fact that he's the one doing that. In fact, one of my favorite developmental uh, spurts, and I, I literally would watch for it and caught it in a couple of my kids, is to be able to watch when they figured out that, hey, I'm doing that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's this enormous jump that happens in their understanding of the world and reality. And, and when you can see those things happen in the life of your kids, I, it's a shot. It just that charges you up for a year. Um, we can do this. We can, we can help our children learn through their feelings. So, for example, when a child is hungry, um, they, they experience the, the world negatively. The world is a bad place. The world hurts me. Uh, the world isn't good. Life isn't good. Because they don't know the difference between life and the world. They don't know the difference between themselves and you. They just know pain. So when they're hungry, what do they do? Okay. Yeah. And if you've ever really listened to a child, a baby's cry, it's, it's pretty much impossible. Hello. Can I help you? Okay, he's not in here. Sorry, buddy. Um, they know, or they don't know, they, we know that it takes a really bizarre parent to, to not listen to that cry. It gets our attention. It gets under our skin. Now, uh, weirdly enough, I can listen to your babies, your newborns cry, and I just, I'm, I love them. <laughs> I'm fascinated by it. Sounds really cool, uh, which really frustrates parents, by the way. Uh, so when you have grandkids, don't tell your kids that. But when, when that hunger cry goes, you want to stop it. So what do you do? You feed the baby. And then the baby's not crying anymore. The baby just learned something. The baby didn't know he learned something, but he did. And he learned that being full feels good. Well, of course, there's gas, and there's a whole other cry now we're going to get. Um, but, but being hungry, being empty, feels bad. Now, that can become more sophisticated as they grow. Um, probably all of you have heard me talk about my granddaughter, Livy. Livy was adopted because for the first four months, what Livy and Tally learned was nobody cares. Nobody gives a rip. You will not get what you need. When you have that pain, it will last, it will last, it will last, it will last. To this day, they hoard food. They may always, because they learned that. They're five years old almost, be five next month. They, they now know. In fact, they don't have any cognitive memory, uh, that one, one that they could pull out of being hungry. They know they're going to be fed. They know they're going to be taken care of. They know they're loved. But they still hoard food. Because they learned. Now the good news is that even with a child like that, we can teach them. So when Livy was in PQ for 30 days, every day, the doctor briefing and saying, can't tell you she's going to live through the day. And she's laying there in a hospital bed and she looks literally like an inflated balloon. She had as much weight of extra water in her body as she started with. She was literally double her weight. And she was obviously miserable, and she was very uncomfortable. And this is the same little girl 
who spent months in a car seat with no one taking care of her for days at a time and laying there. And every minute, one of us was with her, stroking her hair, soothingly talking, saying things that, in terms of meaning, she did not know. Livy, you are not alone. Livy, Jesus loves you. Mommy and Daddy love you. Grandma and Grandpa love you. And we are here. We will always be here for you. We will always be with you. And a nurse comes in as I'm doing that at 3 o'clock in the morning and stroking her hair and saying, Libby, you're not alone, honey. It'll be okay. It won't always be like this. Libby, you're going to be okay. And the nurse looks at me with these kind and sort of pathetic eyes and says, you know, she can't understand that. You know she's not going to remember any of this. And I looked at her with my kind and pathetic eyes and said, you don't have a clue. And I took her outside because she was one-to-one. I mean, it was one nurse to one patient in that unit. And I said, have you ever heard of Piaget? And she said, no. And I said, you need to understand this. And I shared with her what sensory motor learning was about. I said, you need to understand that you're thinking She's not going to remember these words. She's not going to understand these words. And you're right. And it's meaningless. Because the words aren't what it's about. What she's going to remember is being loved. What she's going to remember is being in so much pain and yet being comforted. What she's going to remember is that she's not alone. And she, above all other kids, needs to know that and understand it. And yes, you better believe she'll learn that, and she'll learn the opposite if you leave her alone. And I even looked at her and said, if you've done your homework, you know that without that, she'll die. And there's actual studies that have been done on that, that the very touch that I'm talking about for an infant, for a baby, is mandatory for their life. They'll die without it. And the nurse walked out of there and never one time ever again said that. I don't know if she bought it or not, but she never argued with us again. Now, here's the thing to understand. Your babies learn that way, but so do your 16-year-olds. Because as we develop, we add layers of learning and understanding. We do not get rid of those. The fact of the matter is you learn this way. How many of you have ever smelled something and then had all sorts of, of feelings come because you smelled that something? You know what that's about. Okay. And it can be a good something or a bad something. We don't know the ways. Okay. And, and at my age, I can be taught to this day, and it's a fairly new lesson, when I go past a Yukon, my leg hurts. And when I ride in front of a jack-in-the-box, not just the specific jack-in-the-box, any jack-in-the-box. My leg hurts. Sensory motor learning. It's not psychological. It's not, uh, I mean, just psychological. It's not, you know, just in my head. It's real because we all still learn that way, which means, by the way, that even as adults or with our kids who are teenagers, for example, and are struggling to learn, how uh, do they learn best? Do they learn best when they're upset? Do they learn best when they're feeling distressed? Or do they learn best when they're feeling uh, content and comfortable, not quite content enough to go to sleep maybe, but comfortable? Because for me, that's noise. 
So I work at home a lot. And when I work at home, there's always a TV on. There's usually music on. There may be something else on. And I'm hammering away at my laptop, and I'm cruising. That's how I learn. I can't even tell you how that came about in terms of the, the antecedents of my sensory motor uh, mode. But it's real. And if you put me in a room that is totally silent, totally quiet, I will get nothing done. There's other people who are exactly the opposite. So here we're back to your kids. What have they learned already? Because they've already picked it up. If they're five, six years old, they're, they're already with a model that they've picked up. Okay. This, by the way, often uh, is different for the first, the middle, and the last. Understand why? First child. What's going on? What noises are happening when the first child is brought home? Nothing. Because we're going like this. We're scared snotless someone's going to wake up the baby, right? You bring the third one home, ah, who cares, you know, it's, because there's already two other kids and they're running around screaming and we know we can't stop that. So guess what with the second, third, fourth kid? They don't learn that everything's got to be quiet. They learn differently. Sensory motor. Okay. Now, you're going to see in a moment that this affects not just how they learn, but how they make decisions. But for right now, let's go on. This is something that begins the moment they're born. The fact of the matter is that though we can't really document it, we, through photographic evidence and other kinds of evidence, can, uh, can see that it probably is happening in utero. In other words, we can see uh, evidence that sound affects children in the womb. We can see evidence that um, different motion affects children in the womb and affects them differently. So one child newborn has to be held very still. Another child newborn held very still is going to go crazy on you. Why? Because they've already learned. Okay? But it continues. And as they get older, they learn not just by feeling but by doing. So they start crawling around. They start exploring. They, they want to, uh, what's, what's the biggest uh, sense for a one-year-old? What do you think? Touch? Some, although they're really not skilled at touch yet. So touch is kind of hit and miss. Their knees in the mouth. Ah, why do you think that is? I don't know. Because they can taste. Yeah. They experience the world through taste. Not just taste. They experience the world through sucking. There's a reason they suck on their foot, for example, or on their hand, or on their your hand, or on uh, the dog, <laughs> or anything else they get their mouth on. Um, and it's not just that they're hungry. Sucking is, is food, but sucking also soothes them, and then eventually sucking simply becomes a way of exploring the world. So they can go to the mouth. As they develop, then more hearing, more sight, a lot more touching, because by the preschool years, which jumps ahead a little bit of this, then now they're really skilled at the touching, and they're getting into everything. And you know, they want to just, you know, and now you've got to be scared because, you know, look at that fire. I wonder what that's like, and, because that's how they learn. Okay? They never stop learning. We learn that way right now. We just have added other ways on top of it. So let's go to one of those ways, approximately two. 
approximately is a really important thing because it really starts probably for most kids at 18 months and, and for some kids earlier. Um, in fact, for most kids even earlier. Um, and for other kids, it might not start until two and a half to three. Um, that does not mean that lifelong they're going to be behind everybody. That means they're starting different. That's all it means. So we need to be real careful about freaking out because so-and-so's kid was doing that a year earlier than my kid is. You have no idea what that means for the future, and neither does the so-and-so bragging about her kid. So just don't fall into that trap. But for general purposes, roughly age two, they begin to transition. A lot of this is language because they begin to be able to symbolize and so there's this big, furry, bouncy thing that comes over and licks them, and it's, and it's fuzzy, and they giggle, and uh, they hear someone say a word. And usually we don't say dog. We do not say Labrador, uh, Labrador retriever. We do not say pit bull. And therefore, you do not see little 18-month-olds going pit bull. We say puppy. I mean, the reality is if we were saying other words, they'd pick up the other words. But here's one of the reasons we say puppy. They will not be able to tell the difference between lab and pit bull and uh, dachshund or whatever. Okay? It's puppy. And as they figure out for sure that that sound that they're hearing, and then they start mimicking it and can say puppy, it's, that's this. Then when the cat comes by, puppy. Because it's furry, it's on four legs, it's walking by them. And then, as you're driving down the road, and they're in their car seat, and there's these cattle in the side of the road, they go, puppy! Because, see, they cannot distinguish in, in fine ways these symbols. They're very broad symbols. Can I interrupt for a second? Sure. We were at SeaWorld, and here's Ace at Riley's head. And we were watching the seal. Monkey and the agua, mama. Monkey <laughs> and the agua. I love it. And he used seals to describe a uh, uh, monkey. Yeah. And by the way, it's kind of cool when they're uh, in bilingual homes or they can learn bilingual. But the interesting thing is, remember, that, that what they're doing is they're still learning the same level. They're just learning different words for it. The symbols don't change. And usually they're not going to say puppy and whatever puppy in Spanish is. They're going to pick one. Doesn't matter which one, because that's the one that they've got as a symbol for that. That, of course, develops. And uh, the more they can speak, the more they can uh, learn to say new things, the more they get corrected, the more they get uh, you know, moved in different ways, and the more they begin to then categorize more specifically. And then they're driving down the road, and, and, you know, and, and usually it's like this for second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever kids. Puppy! No, that's not a puppy. That's Big Brother. Because Big Brother knows everything, right? That's cow. Cow? <laughs> okay, now we got another one. And, and you have no idea what the symbol in their head for cow is different than puppy. That's, maybe we'll learn that later, and maybe we'll never pick up on it, but it's happening. And they begin to continue to, they, they begin to do that early. They continue to do that and continue to do that. And yes, the more you talk to them and the more you expose them, the more natural it is for them to do that. So you can facilitate this 
for them. doesn't mean that you're speeding it up necessarily. It just means you're making it easier for them to do it. So here's some examples. Um, we talked about the animal one. Uh, when a child sees, oh, I love this one. Kids sees older kids skateboarding, right? So you've got a, a two-and-a-half-year-old, and he sees these big kids over there. And big kids, by the way, are heroes automatically because they're big kids. And they're skateboarding. And he looks at it, and he thinks, that's cool. That's big kid. So he gets a palm front, and he puts it down, and he goes, I've got a picture of Liam. He's now seven. He's turned seven. Like this. And he thinks he is so cool. He thinks he's surfing the skateboard, you know. Um, he has no concept that those kids, the thing they're doing is significantly different than what he's doing. As far as he's concerned, it's the same thing. Okay. As he grows, obviously, he begins to be able to differentiate that and realize that, okay, I was standing the same way, but theirs was wood and has wheels. <laughs> it's a bit different. Um, a child this stage is told, eat your vegetables. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to have your dessert or have ice cream later. Now, they know the vegetables because they're right there. They know what ice cream is because that's one of the categories they'll learn very quickly. And they want the ice cream. So what do they do? We're talking about a child that's, say, two or three. Okay. Yeah, they do whatever they blame. Well, please, but it's not going to include eating their vegetables. Okay, now... An hour later, when you whip out the ice cream and the other kids are having ice cream and you, because you said this, are being consistent and, you know, little Johnny lines up for the ice cream and you say, I'm sorry, you didn't eat your vegetables. He looks at you like you're Hitler. Because you just said the stupidest thing that could possibly be because what in the world do vegetables have to do with this? Because, see, what he doesn't possess is logical progression. This leading to this it isn't there. And when you act like that's normal and reasonable, all he knows is you're bigger than him and he doesn't get any ice cream. So when he starts yelling and screaming, no big surprise. He's yelling and screaming because the world is unjust and you're a bully. He hasn't learned anything except the world's unjust and you're a bully. Okay? So it does tell us that we need to be very careful about trying to use a discipline um, and a very useful discipline tool, which is logical consequences, for a child who doesn't have the ability to understand logic. Now, by the time he's on the other end of this, a six-year-old is going to have rudimentary logic. He's going to be able to understand that A led to B, and maybe even B led to C. That's pretty much going to be the end of it for most of them. There are some precocious kids. I've, I've got one as a grandson who, at six, probably had more mechanical reasoning than I have now. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I'm, I'm looking at this kid thinking, where did you come from? I know you have my DNA because you got my asthma and a few other things, but how in the world did you do that? Um, and, I'm, and I'm thrilled and, and grateful that he's picked it up, but um, that's very unusual. So when unusual happens, wonderful, great. But don't expect others to have it and don't compare them. Okay. So a six-year-old may well be able to learn this. By the way, they'll still throw a temper tantrum because one of the things that you remember is that their job description is what? Yeah, and what they've, what, one of the cause and effects that they're playing with is um, cause my screaming, effect mom getting fed up and saying, oh, all right, or dad, take your pick, 
and they're going to watch, and they're going to see if that works. And if you wait 10 minutes and you finally give in, what you've just taught them is it takes 10 minutes at least. It didn't teach them anything else except when you start, be ready to do 10 minutes at least, because it takes 10 minutes to get them to give in. But they will give in. Now, as they continue to grow, then they reach what's called the concrete operations. And this is basically what we would call logical reasoning. And this is something that develops from roughly, again, age six. The more they're, they're exposed to other children and to other systems, like, for example, school, which is very different than being at home, uh, coming to Sunday school classes that are now more organized, the more these things kick in because it challenges them to understand that leads to this, leads to this here, over here, that leads to this, leads to this. And then they begin to make those jumps of, oh, this sort of thing leads to this sort of thing leads to this sort of thing. I just described a process that takes from the time they're six to somewhere for the average person around 16 to 18. That little bitty thing of being able to jump and, and say, oh, in both of these that led to this, to this, that, that's, we're talking 6 to 16 or 18. And there's a lot of adults who never reach it. So um, I'm going to assume you have. If you haven't, honestly, it doesn't hurt me because you don't understand that. Um, but the reason for that is because the next one won't make any sense to you at all if you haven't. So I've got to go there. Now, now we can begin to use things like that logical, uh, the logical consequences. If you don't eat your ice cream, or eat your, you know, the ice cream you'll eat. If you don't eat your vegetables, you don't get any ice cream. They're still upset with you, but they understand the link. Nutrition comes over sweet and enjoyable. I've got to eat the, the nutrition stuff uh, in order to get a shot at this, because this is more important. They'll get that. They won't like it, but they'll get it. Okay. Um, and so you can begin as that progresses to teach them logically more and more and more. Um, another example, um, we, we talked about the categorization. An eight-year-old can make distinctions between various types of mammals. Okay. Not just mammals versus birds, because remember the original puppy thing? You know, they might just as easily point puppy to a bird flying through the air. But then they begin to distinguish, and then they begin to distinguish even more. And, in, and by eight, they can begin to say things like, okay, those are mammals that are uh, carnivores. They eat meat. Those are mammals that just eat vegetables. An eight-year-old can do that. They can pick up on that, classify that way. And, and some eight-year-olds can become far more sophisticated than that. A 16-year-old on the other end of this can understand why can understand all of that stuff that we fill in about those categories. Does that make sense? Now, the question, of course, is if yours is 13, well, where exactly in the continuum are they? And my answer is, I don't know. You've got to watch yours. And in some cases, you've got to make all sorts of observations. And in some cases, you're going to say, oh, okay, they're already here. And then the next week, you're going to find they're not. Because this isn't, you know, okay, we're here, and then now it's a done deal. It, it's we're here and then I don't get it, but then the next week I get it again, and then two months later I'm getting it almost every time. And remember, just as none of us has lost sensory motor, none of us has lost that original pre-operational, and none of us has lost the concrete. 
We can still be very, very concrete in our thinking, very literal in our thinking. Okay. And then we move to the formal. The formal operations is what most of us would refer to as the ability to conceptualize, to grasp the ethereal concepts like love. A newborn can grasp love. Love equals you held me and made me feel good and, and soothed me. Okay. Not loved means you didn't. A two-year-old can grasp love because mommy says, I love you, and then does that. So love is mommy saying that in a soothing voice and holding me and rocking me. A six-year-old can grasp love, but now love is a category of things. Love is mommy did this for me, uh, daddy did this for me, grandpa comes and, and hugs me and gives me stuff. You know, all of these to the six-year-old are love. It's a category that includes each of these things. A 16-year-old can begin to understand agape. And maybe a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old. A 16-year-old, the average 16-year-old can definitely. Because now they can understand that love is anything that is whatever's best for the other. Okay. Doesn't mean necessarily they're capable of doing that all the time. Because we haven't quite gone to the decision-making part of all of this. The formal operations can continue to develop and develop and develop, and there are some people who are simply, uh, they, can, they can live out there in the Ethernet, in, the, in that weird world out there. Uh, and by the way, when I refer to the Ethernet, that's not formal operations. When I refer to things like understanding uh, the Ethernet, the Internet, what, where, where would that be in this progression we just looked at? Would it be sensory motor? How, how do you understand internet by sensory motor? No, I mean understand it. I mean can explain how it works. Yeah. That, by the way, that was the tip-off. Can explain how it works. By definition, that's concrete operations. So engineers can be really into the concrete things, and we think, these guys are geniuses. And then you start talking about certain concepts with them, and they're going, because not everybody who's really strong here is in formal operations. How many of you have ever watched the TV show Big Bang Theory? Okay, so a certain side of this room will understand this, this illustration. Uh, because there are some people who sort of skip levels and who are, are almost savant-like in their uh, ability to understand, for example, formal operations, which is extraordinarily ethereal and, and theoretical. And yet the most simple A leads to B leads to C. So Sheldon, for those of you who know that show, um, is the guy who, uh, he's a theoretical physicist and can, can talk in all of those weird terms and have all of these bizarre what-if things going in his head and understand every one of them. And then he looks at a toolbox and says, does anybody know how to open this? Because he literally can't figure out how to open the toolbox. Okay. One of you has spent time helping me with projects around my house. 
Now, I am actually rather gifted in formal operations. That's, that's where I live. That's where my head camps out. And yet, there's a reason my six-year-old is more advanced than I am in that concrete operations thing. And, and that one of you knows that I've stared at things, and you've looked at me like, what a pathetic guy, <laughs> because I'm going, yeah, okay. So you really think we should do that? Now, by the way, once that one of you did that, oh, I got that. Don't ask me to generalize that to other things because that isn't going to happen. But I got that one. You know, I can memorize what you did. So we also need to be watching our children as they develop and understand that while everybody goes through these phases, we don't spend the same amount of time there. We're not as gifted as one another there. Uh, we'll each have our own versions of that. And those last two is where most adults are and most adolescents. And as we're, as we're raising them, we need to know, are they more there or are they more here? And the reason is because all of this has a major impact on how they view right and wrong and make decisions that are moral decisions. A lot of our parenting boils down to helping our children make the right decisions, which, by the way, you might want to consider when you're writing your goals because by the time they're 18, you're not going to be making those decisions for them. So if they can't make their own, they're cooked. They're out there in the big bad world, and every decision they make can ruin or end their life. And we see this in the news all the time. So, you know, why is it that these 19 and 20-year-olds are doing unbelievably stupid things? Because they haven't figured out how to make good decisions yet. Okay. I'm going to focus more on the moral aspect because the other decisions are simply problem solving and it's back to do I understand concrete? Can I generalize concrete to one con from one concrete to another? Because most people can understand that if I lay down in front of a truck and it runs over my head, I'm going to be dead. But believe it or not, there's a whole lot of adolescents about 10 years ago that weren't able to pick up on if I lay down on the white line in the middle of the road, the truck going by me might run over my head and I'll be dead. And this was a fad that swept the country. Fortunately, it ended pretty quick because a whole lot of kids died. And other kids began to generalize that and say, hmm, they died. I might too. Don't think I'll do that. That's pure concrete operations. But it's not moral. It's just it doesn't work. What we want is our kids to understand right and wrong. And as we train them from the very early stages on, they, we need to understand what they're capable of learning. So along comes a guy named Kohlberg. Kohlberg was a, a psychologist at Harvard, I believe, who looked at Piaget, and, and by this time, he was, uh, Kohlberg was like 40, 50 years later, I believe. Um, by this time, Piaget's work was pretty well accepted all over the world, because it's pretty obvious once you look at it. You go, well, bah. all he did, it was, it's what's called descriptive theory. It's, it's a way of describing, not defining a reality. And, and his descriptions are pretty right on for most people. Kohlberg said, well, if we think differently, then the way we think about right and wrong is probably different too. So 
I can't expect a two-year-old to make right and wrong decisions the way I would. Does that make sense to everybody? See, that's a good thing for you. I have been in the home of a man who was punishing his child, 17 months old, for deciding to rebel against him by crying when he shook the child. What happens when you shake a 17-month-old? They get scared. They may get hurt. And guess what? They cry. And Dad, yelling and screaming, I told you to stop that. I'll stop shaking you when you shut up. Somehow just didn't register. So I had to go in with a pair of police officers, have Dad hauled to jail, the child hauled to, first of all, an ER, and then a foster home. Because Dad didn't get that children don't make decisions the same way we do. As he was being hauled out of that home in handcuffs, he was yelling at me because I was punishing him instead of punishing his child for disobeying. Never got it. Never got it. It's one of the few people that I wrote a recommendation. It was in the years when I was both a police chaplain and worked on, con on a contract with the court doing abuse risk assessments for the court. And I wrote a recommendation very quickly and without any, uh, any possibility of uh, believing it was going to change that this young man lose rights uh, as a parent to that child immediately. Because if he ever got his hands on that kid again, that kid would not have lived through an hour. Um, these, are, these are real things. Mostly not that extreme, but we've got to be careful not to do the same thing, but just not near as extreme, because we're still making giant mistakes if we do that. So in the little bit of time I've got left, I'm going to walk you through how um, the way we think influences how we decide right and wrong. And what I'd like you to do over the next uh, week is not only those 16 pages, but look at your child or children. Because by definition, unless they're twins, uh, they're different ages and you're going to be at different stages probably. And ask yourself, where exactly are they? And again, it doesn't have to fit a neat pattern because uh, descriptive theory is, is a nice neat pattern where human beings are not usually nice and neat. Level one, Kohlberg said, is what was called pre-conventional. And it basically corresponds to sensory motor. Uh, the, the early part, he, div he divided each of these into two stages. Uh, stage one is a newborn. And right is avoidance of pain. So a newborn does not giggle and squirm and smile and things like that, partly because they don't have the muscle, muscle uh, ability to do that yet, partly because they're not really recognizing I'm feeling good, I'm feeling full, whatever. They're just there. What they will recognize is when they feel pain. And pain is bad. Pain is wrong. And they learn that to avoid pain is morally right. Now think about what that means for a six-year-old. To avoid pain. It may be physical. It may be emotional. Is morally right. And how do you use that when you're training them? Okay. It's not particularly advanced. It's certainly not where we'd want an adult to be, although there are adults who are stuck here. 
Usually, those adults are combining uh, stage one and stage two, which is acquisition of pleasure. And they learn this by the time they're, oh, usually six months, eight months, nine months, ten months. Uh, the reality is they learn it somewhere along the line uh, of when they can express it. And I suspect they learn it before they can express it. But when they can intentionally smile, and smiling isn't just an accident of their facial expression, but when they're smiling to express something uh, specific to you. I like you being here. I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm giggling, whatever. Uh, when they do that intentionally, by that time, they've usually already come to stage two, which is good equals pleasure. Bad equals pain. Good isn't lack of pain now. It's pleasure, which is cute in a one-year-old. It's not real cute in a 16-year-old. And it's a nightmare in a 26-year-old. In a 26-year-old, this is what we would call pathological. And we have a psychopath. Those are very, very, very rare, by the way, those, those actual people who actually fit that term. Uh, but when you have one of those, there's, there's nothing modern science can do. Short of God healing that person, that person is stuck. I personally believe people get stuck there by the way they're brought up. I've never heard of a psychopath who was not systematically and horribly abused. So we, we, we create these. So most of us don't have to worry about our kids being that. What we do have to worry about is where are our kids? Are they learning this way? And by the way, you and I learn this way too. Remember? How do I feel about Jack in the Box? So you say, hey, Randy, you want to go to Jack in the Box? I go, well, could we maybe go um, to somewhere else? Because if you haven't picked up on it, the guy clipped me in front of Jack in the Box because he wanted to go to Jack in the Box and decided that me being between him and Jack in the Box was a minor problem. And down I went. Uh, so we learn this way. And by the way, it's not rational. So when you look at your kids and you think, well, it's not rational. So who <laughs> said it was rational? This is sensory motor. But your 16-year-old? still learns sensory motor. And your 34-year-old still learns by sensory motor. And so do you. What the good news is, is that we've got these other layers that help us to understand. So if you said, no, I really, really love Jack in the Box and I want to treat you, uh, okay, I can muster what's necessary to get past it because I've got these other layers of learning that says, no, it wasn't really that it was in front of a jack-in-the-box that caused that to happen. It was the kid and the SUV and, you know, him not really paying much attention. Okay, so when we have a child who is learning primarily at the sensory motor level, the preconventional level, can you use things like um, teaching them to learn by explaining the consequences of their behavior? No. They don't have a clue what you're talking about. They look at you, even if they know words, like a two-year-old will hear the words. And so we see parents lecturing their little two-year-olds, and the two-year-olds are going. And then guess what? They turn around and do exactly the same thing. And the parents freaked out, frustrated, and sees the child as rebellious. The child is not rebellious. The child is too. And we've got to be very careful of that because you discipline rebellion different than you discipline uh, misbehavior. Misbehavior is, yeah, I want to correct the behavior. Okay, fair enough. 
you got a knife, you're playing with a knife, you know, you, you found a butter knife, you're playing with the, uh, the socket with a butter knife. I could let you experience the uh, pain thing right there if I wanted to, but I'm going to find other ways, and I'll, I'll introduce to you another method by which you keep your kid from being killed while they're learning, because that's a good idea, right? But as they grow, and again, roughly two years old, as they begin to enter into the pre-operational mode and continue into the concrete mode, they enter level two. Level two is what's called conventional, and it focuses on uh, social interaction. So they learn it as they begin to socialize more. What you see in terms of jumps is when they begin to interact with other groups apart from parents. So when would you think the, the first biggest jump for a child into conventional reasoning would happen? School. School. Whenever they do that. Now, today a lot of kids will go to a four-year-old preschool, and they're going to face the same issue. When I went to school, uh, I didn't even have kindergarten. The state I went to school when, when I first started didn't offer kindergarten. There was no preschool. There was no kindergarten. So for me, it started in first grade. It starts when the experience puts you in situations where you've got to start learning. And the first part of this is the, the role of rule. These are the rules. So I would do something and I would get smacked. And it wasn't with a hand either. Mrs. Baker was pretty handy with that ruler. And that ruler, by the way, had a metal edge. So I bled sometimes. And every stinking time I did anything, because I'm convinced that she hated me, Mrs. Baker came after me with a ruler. Did you notice, by the way, that I remember this woman's name? That's not an accident. Sensory motor is powerful. Um, but what I did learn, because she would always say, is that's not the rule. That's not the rule. That's not the rule. That's not Okay. And now, I can learn that sensory motor. What that means is I don't want to get hit again. You just said I'm going to if that happens. So if I've got any logical progression at all, I'm going to try to stop doing that. And that can be simply be an association even. But at a certain point, I begin to understand the rules are important for us. So now, not only is that the rule for me, but when you as another little six-year-old break the rule, I'm telling you broke the rules. Why? Because that was morally repugnant to me. Seriously, because that's all I know about morals is rules. Now, as I grow, as I learn, usually somewhere in the 8, 9, 10, then relationships become as important. And it's not just about rules. It's about the social system and the relationships and us. And it's us. It's not them. It's us. It's in-group. I belong. This is us. And for us to exist, family, the biggest us, my class, the next biggest us, you know, whatever group association I have, then we have our own little system. We have rules within our system. And those are extraordinarily important because that's how that system exists, and I live for that system. That system is so important. When I was six years old, I went to school, and there was two water fountains. One of them said white, somewhat of a misnomer. I don't see white. But they let me drink from it. The other one said what? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Too narrow. Color. Because that meant more. That meant anybody not us. 
when we see people who are so stuck in the system of us, that they'll do anything for us, they can be very kind, very loving, very giving in us, but as soon as one of them comes in, whoever them is, them is not us, it's a threat. It's a threat to us. It's a threat to me and the people I love. They're going to act that way. Why is it that even today there are people who act that way who simply cannot grasp that their behavior is morally repugnant? Because they're here. They're stuck there. And we can, we can try all we want to reason with them. And if you've you know, watched things over, and, and I'm going to throw one out, it's probably going to get me in trouble, but for example, discussing uh, the flag the Confederate flag. Very highly symbolic. Guess what? People at this stage are not symbolic. That's not a symbol to them of some uh, ethereal concept. That's us. And you're telling us we can't be us anymore. Whereas to anybody who understands history and has some conceptual ability, of course it's a symbol of racism. Of course it's a symbol of slavery, of oppression. So why is there such a giant argument? It's because people don't think the same way. Now, as they gain the ability to move beyond into conceptualizations, they enter level three. This is, of course, what we're hoping for for our kids. And we're hoping it for our kids before they're 18 because, after all, when we launch them, we want them to be fully there. The problem is not everybody develops this by the time they're 18. Some people will develop it in their 20s. Some people will develop it over the course of the rest of their life, and some people never will. I know many adults who live at level two and will never get past it. So be careful about expectations if they don't fit where your kid is. Even if your kid happens to be 17 and a half or, or, or 18 or 34. Yeah, we're going to be discussing that when we talk about mostly prevention, but even next week when we talk about the nature of parenting and those goals, because it's all about here we are. You know, let's say my goal is by the time my child is 18, I want my child to have accepted Jesus as his king and truly live that way. Good goal? Okay. My child's two. Am I going to reach it this week? No, ain't going to happen. So how do I get from 2 to 18? Unfortunately, what most parents do is they say, well, they're not ready. So they just back burner it <laughs> at about 17 and a half. They whip this out and say, we need to talk. And it is so too late. So the question becomes, what's the two-year-old version towards that goal? Three, four, five, six, or, you know, and a half, if you will. It's constantly, where are they now, and what's the version of getting them towards that goal now? So we have to become the world's greatest experts on our kids. And if we don't do that, we'll never accomplish the parenting goals. Real quick, let me hit level three. Level three requires the ability to conceptualize. And it, it moves right and wrong beyond rules and what's best for us to the concept of, a, of an interactional contract, a social contract, and that social contract is going to broaden past us. This is what happens, for example, when a kid who's grow, who grows up in a racist home goes to a college 
and is all of a sudden confronted by the reality that uh, their roommate is black. Or white, for that matter, because maybe they were black and grown up in a racist home, because that happens too. And they find out the roommate is not, in fact, smelly, filthy, dirty, stupid, or morally repugnant. And, in fact, they begin to actually begin to like each other, and they realize that they have to redefine us. And they form a social contract that's based more on, social, uh, or, or on moral constructs that, that go past this old group and the rules of our old group. And by the way, the biggest collision for them is the first time the two collide. In other words, when I bring my roommate home and then realize that my parents hate him, even though I never met him. And that happens. It still happens today. Finally, the last part of this is where we realize that right and wrong is not really about me or, for that matter, about you. The right and wrong is about universal principles. Christians believe universal principles come from the creator of the universe. And so we have the word. But remember that there's a lot of people who have the word who are stuck back here at level two in the very concrete reasoning. And they're the ones who really struggle with what I referred to this morning about a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Because they get the law. They understand rules. What they don't get is conceptualizing anger equals killing. Seriously? So what they do with that is they say, okay, anger is bad too. And that just became another rule. But they haven't understood what the heart of what Jesus just said for the simple reason that they're not mature enough mentally to do that. The reality is not a lot of people reach stage six. Not a lot of adults reach stage six. I guarantee you not a lot of 18-year-olds are at stage six. So if we think they're going to be there, so to speak, by the time we're no longer uh, their legal parent, uh, we're going to be disappointed. And again, don't judge your parenting until your kids are 30. Because when they're 30, if they're going to reach stage six, they're probably capable of it now. And yes, you have a lot to do with helping them get there. But we're out of time, and I actually went over a little bit, and I apologize for that. Um, I will try not to do that, even though we're not as limited, because we don't have anybody who has children in child care here right now, right? Whereas Tuesday night, if I don't stop at 8.30, Sherry comes and screams at me. So um, I'm going to go ahead and turn off the recorder now, but if, because we are done. But if anybody has any other questions, I'll be happy to hang around for a little